Welcome to the Rippling Pages podcast, a podcast on the craft of writing, created and crafted by me, Liam Bishop. Today, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Dawn Garish, a woman of letters in South Africa. Dawn has written novels, memoir, poems, and short stories. She's won and been shortlisted for awards for her writing too. She's won the Darlow Prize for the best poem, and she was shortlisted for the Sunday Times CNA Literary Award, among many others the latter of which has been won by the likes of Zoe Wycombe and Jane Curtsy, no less. But it's that novel that was shortlisted, Breaking Milk, which we're here to discuss today. It's been released in the UK by Heloise Press. Protagonist Kate, a former geneticist who now makes organic cheese, is frozen out by her daughter. As we see her tending to the farm, a mix of both brutal hard work and tender, fastidious caring, it's a question of whether Kate will be able to contend with the past to understand her future. Dawn, as well as a writer, is also a doctor, and she joins me from South Africa. Dawn, thank you very much for joining me on The Ripping Pages. Thank you, Liam, for the opportunity. Really welcome it. Whereabouts are you, uh, Dawn, in, in South Africa? I live in Cork Bay, which is a little fishing village uh, next to Cape Town, the big city. So I have the advantage of both lives, a small community and the larger city. Okay, so when there is a bit of South Africa, well, there's quite a lot of South Africa in uh, this novel, which we might come to. But I wanted to start by talking about uh, Kate. Kate, who is a narrator of Breaking Milk. And the, the the world is filtered very much through her experiences. She, We've spoken a little bit about what she does and who she is, a geneticist or former geneticist, an organic cheesemaker. And we spoke about some of the problems that she faces with her daughter. We learn a lot about Kate. We learn a lot about her past as well. But can you just, I'm just really interested in Kate in, in, in writing about her and why you chose to write about her at this specific moment in time. Right. So, you know, I think of a novel as a lake with many tributaries. Uh, one of them, the, the structure of the book is a day in the life of this cheesemaker on a particular day when there are a number of things happening in her life. Uh, the, the major one is that her estranged daughter, who's living in the UK, it has uh, given birth 18 months previously conjoined with twins, and they're having surgery on the day of the novel, and um, her daughter has said to her, don't come. Obviously, she wants to be there with her daughter in this terrible, terribly difficult time, but the daughter has said, do not come. And I know a lot of people who've been estranged from their children, and it seems to be quite a thing at the moment. Uh, and I'm curious about what feeds into that separation um, and how Kate could manage it. Um, you know, I've had personal experience of estrangement, which fortunately have, have resolved. But at the time of writing the novel, um, I was in the middle of a difficulty with my own children. And I often write from that space that, um, you know, what, what is disturbing me and how can I explore it in a work of fiction? Because once you've done everything out in the world you can to solve the problem, Either you freak out and start behaving badly or you take it to an artistic project and work it through there. You might come to a different understanding of your own bad habits and your own uh, thought habits, your behavioral habits, you know, and maybe you can explore them on the page. Another, it was so the, the structure of the book, A Day in the Life of, comes from Crystal Wolf's book, wonderful book, Accident, A Day's News, which is about an East German writer who wakes up one day and um, she cycles to the post office and she posts a letter and she goes home and she sweeps on the radio and Chernobyl has just blown up. Um, so the news is full of don't go out, don't let the children play outside, don't eat the lettuce, don't drink the milk, don't do this, you know. Uh, at the same time as radiation is wafting across Europe, her brother 
is um, undergoing surgery for a brain tumor, and they don't know yet whether it's cancerous or whether it's benign, whether he'll need radiation. So this day in the life of this East German writer, it's like a meditation on radiation, the things that, the ways in which it harms us and the ways in which it can help us. And I really like love that structure. I also wanted the challenge because it's hugely challenging to write a day in the life of anybody because a lot of things happen in the day of, of anybody's life that's a hell of a boring. So I wanted to see, is it, is it possible for, to write about um, somebody's day without it becoming terribly boring? Um, I'm also interested in how we use our minds. You know, what are, how do our minds jump around? Um, and in that jumping around, influence how we manage our lives, how we manage our days, how we make decisions. Ironic that it's Wolf, uh, obviously Virginia Wolf, the English writer who was very... Different spelling, though, yeah. Right, okay. Is it, um, okay. Yeah, I think one O and two Fs. Yeah, just, I think. The, the noise yeah. of it just made me think, oh, well, there's another writer <laughs> who sort of specialised in writing a novel about a day, about yeah. a female protagonist, Clarissa Dalloway. That's um, right, yes, exactly. Um, but also <laughs> you, you mentioned that there is this, um, but you kind of said it was about all these things that you can't do. So there's a, there's an air raid warning because there's radiation and you'll get infected and go outside and what have you. Th that is kind of the opposite of what's going on in here. Kate is very much within the world. We are seeing her on the farm. We're seeing her kind of trying to to connect with her daughter, seeing her memory in the back. There's so much going on. There's so much that she does experience and that we that you kind of detail strikes me that that experience it and she's experiencing things all those things within her mind uh, yeah. but also within her body uh, as well yeah but it is also an environmentally charged book you know we're living in these difficult times so that whole turnable disaster um she's also has a meditation on on how we use our minds to create very astonishing inventions which can also destroy us so you know there is an overlap there in my book as well so whereabouts in south africa is it set? it's in the eastern cape uh, which okay. which is east from where i am okay. about 600 kilometers away and um yeah so it's a small body and it's an actual farm belonging to an actual friend of mine um and so the the setting of the novel is you know i job shadowed him so that I learnt the cheese-making process. Uh, I thought it was a wonderful metaphor to contain the concerns of the novel. Stayed over with him. He got me up at five o'clock in the morning or past four uh, uh, to go and fetch the cow's milk from the neighbouring farm because he only has goats on his farm. And uh, he also runs a restaurant from his soup. So everything in the novel is an actual, it actually exists. And anybody who comes to South Africa, I strongly advise that you go and have a most wonderful cheese lunch at his farm, Bainbos Hook Farm. That location in the Eastern Cape was also chosen, now all these overlaps, you know, um, James Kutsia's novel Disgrace is set on a farm in the Eastern Cape run by a, um, a woman farming on her own. And this whole question of what compromises do you have to make to be a woman farmer, a white woman farmer, farming in a predominantly black area in South Africa? Um, I felt that there were certain things that disturbed me a lot. I mean, it's a disturbing book, it's a disgrace, but I also wanted to write a different kind of story about South Africa and women farming alone and what is possible. So that, that was also something that fed into the concerns of the novel and why it was located in the Eastern Cape.
what is it about the Eastern Cape? So also we've got this, this cheese farm there, but what is it? Is there, is there a kind of particular social dynamic or political dynamic that, that also makes it interesting? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an area where a, a lot of um, traditional practices amongst the local uh, black population um, occur. So one of the separation issues, you know, a lot, a lot of the concerns of the novel are about what, what things bind us as human beings that are necessary and good for us and what things bind us that are tragic, like, like conjoined with twins that need to be separated, what separates us that is necessary and what separates us that, that is tragic. Uh, so one of the separation between parent and child is the initiation practices of a young man, Lizuko, who is the son of a woman who works for Kate Nosisi. She works for her in the kitchen. And uh, he's busy undergoing the, the initiation ritual in the mountains. Young men are taken into the bush. They've only got a blanket. They've got um, minimal resources and uh, they, they, are, they undergo a, a ritual circumcision. And uh, as the book, obviously I had to research this as well, um, a lot of it, a lot of those practices are secret. So um, I don't trespass into those areas, but they talk about the cutting off of the foreskin as cutting away the mother's apron, um, as a symbolic thing of separating from the mother and becoming a man in their own right. Part of it, traditionally I understand, is that if you can survive that, all those incredible hardships and stresses of the operation without anesthetic, um, of staying out of the cold and problems of potential infection, uh, while you are also taught by elders how to be a man, how to behave in the world, if you can survive that, then you truly are a man. The, the other question is, do, are we solely responsible for the raising of our children? This whole question is, it, you know, there's a saying in South Africa, it takes a village to raise a child. So if you're estranged from your old, own children, what does it take to look after somebody else's? So there's this very physical separation going on, yeah. um, surgical separation. We, we've spoken about ideas of separation that sort of, sometimes these are quite yes. aberrant, sometimes these are quite harsh, sometimes they're not so much. You kind of see on the farm as well, I assume that on the farm, you know, and, and the kind of goats and the, and the cows, you would you would probably see it for the, for the production of cheese, production of dairy, is obviously, you know, infants are separated from their mothers, aren't they? So yes. I don't know if that happens on this farm, but... Um... She does say, she does comment that she regards herself as a humane farmer, as an organic farmer, and that she doesn't separate the goats prematurely, the kids from the goat, the, the mothers prematurely, as her neighbouring farmers do, you know, with the, with the cows. So she's trying to farm ethically. Because the, the cheese, the aspect, the making this cheese, and you've sort of you detailed it because you've detailed the process as well. You've you've done it and you've you've lived it. How much of this is a kind of you know sort of remedial process? How much is it kind of uh, a healing process, maybe for 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 Kate directly or indirectly, sort of the problems yeah. she faces? Yeah. So she's a geneticist and a microbiologist, and she was required in her job, her previous job, to step over the boundary of what she considered ethics so you know ex experiment experimentation with human embryos and uh so she decided to leave the field and at the same time her father is trying to sell off this uh, small holding thinking her, his three daughters are not capable of farming and so she objects and she says she wants to take over the farm so she goes from culturing embryos in the lab to culturing milk 
in Mokshed. Um, and um, that whole question of the invisible life, you know, whether it be genetic life or whether it microbiological life, that there's something going on that they cannot see that determines our, our, our health and our well-being and our futures and the future of the planet. Um, and part of that is the, the problems in our society of pollution and um, uh, climate change. And But there's also the part of uh, that we can't see where microorganisms create cheese. And you just have to be patient and wait and um, know what to do at the right time and not interfere to make really good cheese. Uh, and that waiting process. So I think for, for Kate, yes, it's, it's this process of trusting that there's something beyond her will, her ego, that is happening to create the thing that she's actually dependent on, making really winning cheeses. Um, and I like that as a metaphor for how um, we can maybe think about changing the way we live on this planet. Hey there, just a quick message from me. And just to say, if you're really enjoying today's podcast, I'd be really grateful if you left a review on your favorite podcast provider. The Rippling Pages is all about letting writers talk about their craft so that you and other listeners can learn more about the art of literature. Leaving a review increases the reach of the podcast and hopefully means that more people will hear about the writer's work. Thanks very much, and it's just great to have you here. Does, does Kate achieve what you think she needs to achieve? Yeah, so, uh, you know, all, I think all my books concerned, and my plays and a lot of my poetry, uh, I'm... I'm grappling with this split in myself and in society between the art and the sciences. Um, how do we bring them together? We are one being. Why is it that we have managed to, in our culture, separate out the arts and the sciences? Where is the overlap, you know, the objective and the subjective experience? And on the one hand, Kate, there are many ways of being creative, and Kate's incredibly creative around cheese making. She does want to get back to uh, the piano and she watches this young girl who's sitting at this uh, lunch table with her relatives eating her. Well, she's not actually interested in the cheese. She's trying to get back to her drawing and she recognizes something in that child about herself, her own desire. You, you know, creativity brings so many things together. It's, it helps us understand who we are, where we come from. It helps us cope with the unknown uh, because creativity, by definition, is not knowing where you're going. So Kate has got that passion. Of course, there's so many things interrupting her day. Um, but I think that whole question of the inner critic and how it interrupts and disrupts, uh, which is often a, a, a parent or a teacher or a, um, a sibling, somebody who put you down when you were very young, and now you carry that voice in your head saying, I'm no good and why bother? And also this idea of, the hierarchy. You know, I think I think part of our task in this time of great difficulty in the planet is to push back against the idea of the hierarchy, which we are all trained in. You know, there's a saying from the 12-step program, get down from the hierarchy of the ladder and into the circle of community. This idea that somebody's always better than you and there's somebody you're trying to be better than somebody else. And you know, how do you climb on somebody else's head to get further up the ladder? <laughs> Um, how do you write the award-winning novel or whatever it is, you know, that, that idea stops a lot of people from even picking up a paintbrush or making a dance move or, 
you know, getting stuck into a bit of play because somebody somewhere has done it better than you, has or has published or whatever, it been in a gallery. Jak, Jak Panksepp, who was a Polish neuroscientist, he did, his work was uh, looking at mammals and the neural circuits that you have to be born with in order to survive. And he named eight, what he called emotional command systems of the brain. And they include things like fear. You have to be able to be afraid as soon as you are born as a mammal. Attachment, you have to be able to attach to your mummy's titty, otherwise you're dead. You have to be able to seek, you have to be able to look for your mummy's titty so you can attach. Uh, one of them is play. You have to be able to play as soon as you are born, in, otherwise you can't learn. So you can't learn how to play because you have to be able to play in order to learn. So that idea, you know, so play is not about winning the award. It's about learning who you are, where you came from, what to do about it, how to engage with other people, how to be observant of the world, our relationships, try things out. So I, I think of it as it's a mental health activity. And that's one of the reasons why I started the nonprofit the Life Writing Collective to help people learn how to write about their lives in an effective way that they can communicate with themselves primarily, find out who they are and what to do about it, um, and also to communicate with other people and grow community. It's growing your capacity for curiosity rather than fear and growing your capacity for not knowing what's going to happen next year. I'm going to ask you, might sound a bit like a cheeky question here, but does, would Kate, how would Kate benefit then from, or would she benefit, stand to benefit from something like the Life Writing Collective? <laughs> okay. Um, well, she'd be, learn, first of all, to not to or, or manage the inner critic, that critic that says she's no good and why bother and you may as well go and do something else because that's a big stopper i think of things as either being stoppers or helpers you can't get rid of the the inner critic you know virginia wolf said in her wonderful essay aroma one's own uh, that you must kill the angel of the house and what she was saying in the time in which she was writing is that women find a way not to always be in service of men you know, to be the smiling wife with the supper ready and the you know running around making the house look neat you have to be able to say, I need my own time, I need my own money, I need my own space. So Kate has achieved that extent. She's got her own farm. She's standing up to all the criticism of the men around her, the male farmers who have industrialized and they're using fertilizers and they're separating the mummy cows from their calves really young and doing what she considers unethical practices. Uh, so she's doing a wonderful thing in the world, but... To get back to the piano, she has to get rid of that mother's voice that's saying that she's no good. Very interesting ways of doing that. You, you have to find an image. You know, we so this again is neuroscience, that we make decisions out of images or narratives. So often stories that we tell ourselves under the radar of consciousness. We've got this whole big story going, and that is driving our behavior and our decisions, our choices. We don't even know it's there. You know, we, we're born into all sorts of stories. So the... Part of the task is discovering what story are you telling yourself or what image is driving your behavior and then negotiating with it using the tools of the artist rather than the logical, rational, interpretive mind. We know, I know as a doctor, that you can put all the facts in front of somebody busy with self-destructive behavior and it usually doesn't help. So you, you need to 
find out what story you're telling yourself and then write that story, even as a work of fiction, or take it to the clay and, and get that feeling and create something. And then you start having a conversation with what you don't know. You don't know about your own thought habits and behavioral habits. And things can change in the most unexpected ways. So Kate could write a story about that inner critic, about a woman who can't play the piano uh, because she keeps getting interrupted by this voice in her head. Kate is a kind of narrator, but she isn't. She, she's not a, you don't write in first person, but this is very much within Kate's filtering this yeah. book to some extent. She's writing it. She feels like she's writing it to some extent. Yeah. But she's faced by all these things that prevent, like I said, she's prevented by these, well, a very critical voice in, in her mother, which is where often we can sort of inhabit these, in, you know, interject these very critical voices isn't it, from, from parenthood. But then there's also, what I find interesting in relation to that is we do actually have another writer in the book, another her ex-husband oh, yes. is a writer. Now, I find this, <laughs> I find this such an interesting dynamic because he is, uh -huh. he's, he's, he's a bit of a, well, he's getting it to be honest. He's not a very nice chap. It doesn't sound it from what I've, um, it doesn't sound it from what I've read, but he is writing a very specific form of uh, fiction that troubles Kate quite a lot, doesn't it? Or seems to trouble her quite a lot she goes through and it, and it brings back some very, well, traumatic experiences for Kate, doesn't it? So you do have this, you do actually have a writer in the book, but he, but he is uh, a certain type of, of writer, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he is. <laughs> <laughs> He's, um, yeah, I suppose it's the, I suppose for too long, the male gaze has dominated or the masculine view. Um, yeah, I'm treading on uneven ground here because you know things have become much more um, open and fluid but uh, I think there's something there's something to be said for um, a female take um, and this is a very particular man in the book you know he's not the only kind of man in the book but um, he's he is arrogant and he thinks his point of view is the one that matters uh, he's manipulative and he thinks he understands women and he certainly hasn't understood Kate. Um, how is it that we perpetuate certain attitudes that it's high time they change towards women, towards children, towards the environment, um, yeah, towards any kind of othering, you know, other people who don't look the same as we do? I don't know. I don't know what kind of went through your mind, but it just seemed to drop him in at these very specific moments. And it just kind of makes you go, "Oh, you bastard!" He's done it again. He's, <laughs> you know, he's kind of here again, and I don't know how you create this. He's doing snippets, and he's just does this kind of within the moment. You kind of and you said it there. You said that he said he thinks that he understands women, and that is he. He just thinks that he's got it nailed on, doesn't he? And he's so wrong, and he's got it so wrong about sex and sexuality and women. And in general, how you just in those, and that's what the book so you you know so intricate is that you give very specific detailed. You kind of get people's situations within a very short period of time. You get something like why a daughter, you don't get why the the relationship sort of not working, but you 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 get the kind of emotion, you get the feeling that, that that's going on uh, in a there very a, snippets. I think one of the threads in the book is when do you say yes and when do you say no, and. Um... The first is happens, I think, more or less in the middle of the book when Narcissi says no. So this woman who works for Kate comes out and she says a big no 
to a very domineering man uh, who is on the surface of things, it, it's fine. You know, what he's doing is fine. It's what we do. It's, you know, what is the problem? But actually, there's a big problem. Um, and Sisi is the one who's able to say a big no. And I think that that, in a sense, feeds into Kate's ability later on in the book to say yes, uh, when when it's really needed, necessary to say yes. But but we're also left with not knowing, you know, because it's a day in the life, we don't know what happens on the next day and the next day. So I, I wanted to leave the book without any easy answers or without any, you know, little tired little bow because life's like that you know what is her next yes or no going to be around um, the whole circumstance of her yeah and that's i think that's a really good way of putting it, i think that's yeah that's yeah she's all the time she's got to make a choice about what she does and it's not any kind of inflate it's not like a you know it's not and it's not trivialized these are the choices that we have to make every day do i contact that person that i've not spoken anymore how do i contact them yeah how do I phrase it? How do I say it? Do I reject this person for the second? Yeah, all these kind of choices that we have to make on a yeah daily every basis. moment of every day we're making a yeah. choice, if we, whether we know it or not. Yeah, exactly, completely, exactly. Yeah, and and just you know, and just based on what you said, the kind of novel it it ends really sort of going back to it goes back to a sort of dark moment in in Kate's past. I don't want to. Which you can talk about, but also it, it it goes back to her childhood. She goes, she doesn't go forward in time. She sort of goes backward in time. Um, and the choices that she makes, do you think that she makes? How do you, how did you balance making those choices that Kate has to make? Does she make the right ones? Does she make the wrong ones? Or is it not about right and wrong? She makes some um, complicated, potentially problematic choices. Um, for example, around the, her next door neighbor. Um, but, you know, that does throw in the air that question of, you know, what is a right choice and what is a wrong choice? Because, you know, life is such a mystery in a sense. And very often the logical choice isn't that obvious. You know, we, we are emotional beings and we make choices out of some other subterranean motivation. So, yeah, I think she makes right choices and she makes wrong choices. I, I think she she herself is a complicated character, and um, you know she's not a she's not an angel, um, but I think she does learn something in the course of that day, which is really essential. And I hope for her sake that she carries that that increased capacity forward into her own relationship with her daughter, and that her daughter can recognize it that um, that her mother has changed without going into the details, um, where she says yes instead of no. Listeners won't be able to see this, but there is a stethoscope. It looks like a stethoscope hanging from oh, behind you. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, yes as you mentioned, that you are uh, a doctor. Um, I and, and there's the Life Writing um, Collective. Um, how do all these things then work in balance? How do these, how do these very, what sound quite different ideas sort of inform what you do as a writer? Yeah. Yeah, well, the trouble with medical training, uh, it's very eloquent, it's very um, sophisticated, uh, there's very real interventions can be made, as you know, from eloquent body, I mean, I had an eye condition, I might well be blind without serious medical interventions, unable to read, write, drive, so I'm incredibly grateful that we live in the age where uh, there are medical interventions to assist me and other people 
uh, in that way. But the trouble is that we focus so much on the technology of medicine. It's too much a business um, that we've left out the human story. And I think the story we're telling ourselves affects our well-being hugely. I mean, the Life Writing Collective, we, we did a, a research project, a qualitative research project during the pandemic. And it's just been published in the British Medical Journal, the hum, uh, Medical Humanities section. And in this research project, we demonstrated that what we say we do is actually what we do, which is helping people to write about their stories improves well-being and helps to build community. Because if you can have that conversation with yourself on the page and find out who you are and what to do about it, and then you can bear witness to your own life and the times in which you live to other people, it can, you can also act as an advocate, um, as an activist. Uh, you can help change not only yourself, but hopefully society. So I see this, this work, uh, artists who engage in that area, not, not, as, not as propaganda, but if we can bear witness to the complexities of what it is to be a human being, uh, it's hugely beneficial to our health, our lives, health of the planet. And so I see it as primary health care. Uh, as I say, it's part of the medical humanities movement, which is all about how the social sciences, the arts and the health sciences can have a conversation with each other and meet and find ways forward that can improve health care for everybody. And Winnicott spoke a lot about play, didn't he? And, and fundamental aspects yeah. of playing. Um, but for, just thinking also about who we are and how we sort of measure who we are and what you know, how how do we grade ourselves? And he, Winnicott spoke a lot spoke a lot about this idea of good enough mothers, didn't he? And good, and that yes, seems right. to be what Kate's trying to achieve. And that's yeah, not achieve, but that I kind of felt like I thought of that idea for Kate. I thought of the idea yes. of someone who is just doing the best that they can in the circumstances yeah. that they Yeah, brought. I think that's true. Um, yeah, that's that's a lovely point. Um, it also brought to mind um, The Body Keeps the Score. Yes. Uh, I was literally say, yeah, Bessel van der What Kolk. a great book, eh? And yeah. he also brings in uh, creativity as, a, as an avenue for expression in, in deeply traumatised human beings. But what an incredible man that he saw such humanity in people who were violent and mm. you know had very serious behaviors in the world but they were, it was all backed by the story they were telling themselves because of their trauma and um and how he he you know he sat with them as he saw them as his teachers you know so that kind of compassion and humility is also what we need in the world you know and mm. he's clearly a very creative man himself yeah we need um we need containers though we need people that can handle that they yeah, can handle yeah. it as much as we need to tell our own stories we need people who can handle those stories yeah, don't right. we as well i think well get your hands in the clay which seems like a metaphor for <laughs> um i like that i like that idea you, you know get your hands dirty get stuck into it uh kate gets her hands into the cheese similar similar viscosity you know or well, they can but it depends what you what cheese it is i guess but um, <laughs> kate's getting her hands into it she's getting her hands into the into the into the cheese yeah dawn garish it's been an absolute pleasure Breaking Milk is out uh, in March, so it'll be out after this uh, podcast goes out. Um, thank you very much for joining me from South Africa, but for now, thank you very much for being on the Rippling Pages. Thank you, Liam. Very pleased to be here. Thank you.